John chapter 4, the prophesied Christ. John chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1, 1 to 26. And our passage is verses 19 to 26. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that when we study this passage, we will understand more and better about the way in which the gospel and the truths of the gospel must be presented to unbelievers. We thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we'll understand this truth. We also pray that we will understand what it means to truly worship you and to know you through the scriptures and to know Christ through these scriptures. And our prayer is in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We pick up in this conversation in John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. That's where we begin. And in this section, we have the woman acknowledging at least that Jesus is a prophet. And then she is told finally by the end of it in 4, 25 to 26, that he is the Christ. And then later in the chapter, we will understand that she ends up believing that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the one that they were expecting to come into the world to restore all things. But meantime, she needs to be corrected. She needs to be corrected with her false theology, her false worship, her false concepts of God. She needed to be corrected before she could believe in what she needed to believe, to believe in Jesus Christ for her salvation. Already we have seen that when they begin this dialogue at the well, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, 
and she doesn't understand what water he has, spiritual water he has, that is the Holy Spirit. And then when she is not understanding that Jesus wants to talk about spiritual matters and those spiritual matters are what she really needs in her life, when she doesn't get that point, what does Jesus do? To make sure she understands that he's talking about spiritual things, not physical water, he points out her sin. He brings up the subject of her sin. Then her eyes begin to open up and realize, oh, I know now what he's talking about. He's talking about these things that deal with my life and spiritual things. Um, He's not offering physical water that never makes anybody thirsty again. He's He's talking about something else. She begins to understand that when Jesus pointed out her sexual sin and that she was fornicating with a man. Then we pick it up midpoint at verse 19. After she realizes that, she doesn't deny it. Jesus points it out. You have said this truly, you, you don't have a husband. Then she asks, she shifts from her personal sin to a general theological topic. Whether she's doing this on purpose to deflect from her sin or whether she is curious, how did this man know this? And then wants to ask him more theological questions because if he can know my personal sin and confront me, maybe he has answers to these other issues that are out there that are common conflicts, points of interest among the people. So she transitions to that Perhaps insincerely and perhaps sincerely. Whatever the case, she makes this transition and Jesus goes along with the transition to answer her questions. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. Why does she perceive that Jesus is at least a prophet? Why? Because he knew about her life, even though they were strangers to each other, he knew about her personal life, which no one would know if they were strangers. That's impossible. This secret or special mysterious knowledge is that which is typical of a prophet. Example, Luke seven thirty nine. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. You see how the people knew that prophets have extra and special knowledge of people and their circumstances, and this is the way of prophets. We also know, remember, in the book of Kings, in the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Jeroboam is an evil king, and he has a sick son. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they may not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. And take ten loaves with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. See how Jeroboam, a wicked king, goes to a true prophet or sends his wife to a true prophet because he knows that that true prophet will know about the particulars about the boy's life, his son's life, and the future of that boy's life. Verse four, and Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now, Ahijah could not see. He could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. But the Lord, now the Lord had said to Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. And it came about when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway that he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. 
God informed blind or nearly blind Ahijah the prophet of what was going to happen. And when the woman came and he just heard her at the threshold of the doorway, that's when he says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. When she did not announce, and nobody had announced to him who was coming, and she even disguised herself as not being the wife of Jeroboam. So she certainly, the woman of Samaria, certainly would have known about these kinds of things the way that prophets are. Typically, the way that they have extra knowledge or extra insight into people and their circumstances. Well, you see, she is beginning to understand. She should have asked the question, who are you? Back in verse 10, because Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. At that time, when Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me. But she didn't ask. Now that God, that Christ has revealed her sin, she is asking, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, her dilemma or her question, the conflict, which was a common point of dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews. Remember, we're dealing with two races of people. The Samaritans are a mixed race ethnically, and the Jews are not. And even the Samaritans, primarily, they worshiped idols and mixed the true religion of the Old Testament with idolatrous worship. But then there were others of them who had a restricted view of the Old Testament, who didn't worship idols the way everybody else did, but they only believed in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, which is known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. Even to this day, there's a few hundred Samaritans and they believe only in the Samaritan Pentateuch. And this is the case in the time of Jesus and throughout history. So she says, based on this background and conflict, verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Our fathers our fathers, our fathers, she intends to include at least Jacob because she wants to associate herself and her people at least to the patriarch Jacob in verse 12. She says, you are not greater than our father Jacob. Jacob. She's including Jacob and probably Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, probably also Ephraim and Manasseh, probably also the tribes located in the northern kingdom and those who are the remnant of these in a mixed race there in the area or region of Samaria. She's probably including all of them and saying they worshiped in this mountain. Now, we do know based on Genesis chapter 12, we do know and based on Genesis chapter 33 that both Abraham and Jacob went to Shechem the city of Shechem, they established, they, uh, Jacob bought a parcel there in Shechem. He even had this well, that well, Jacob's well, that is in here, this chapter, in this context. All of this possessed by Jacob. And they did build altars there. They worshiped God there at Shechem. And Shechem was there near Mount Gerizim. So whether Sikar is Shechem or Sikar is very close to Shechem, the mountain that she's speaking of there in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. She means Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. And there Moses commanded the tribes, once they entered and conquered the land of Canaan, he commanded some of the tribes to pronounce blessings on Mount Gerizim, and opposite Mount Gerizim was Mount Ebal. And the curses, some of the tribes to pronounce curses, blessings for obedience to the law and curses for disobedience to the law, to do that right there. And then, so not only did the tribes do that on Mount Gerizim, not only did Abraham and Jacob worship there 
at the mountain or near the mountain at Shechem, but also the Samaritans. The Samaritans themselves, because of their ancestors, they established a temple there. This is not written in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, they actually established their own temple there at Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans to worship there. And even throughout history, there has been a synagogue of the Samaritans there also. The temple since then has been destroyed. It was built in the 400s BC, and then it was destroyed in the 100s BC, about 100 or 100 years or 150 years before the time of the Samaritan woman and this conversation with Christ. However, the Samaritans still had synagogues and they still believe that that's the right place to worship. So all of this is happening and this is in her mind. But what do you notice about all this? There is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of he said, she said going on here because she is basing her thoughts, basing her conclusions, even basing her worship on what the ancestors have said instead of what? What the Word of God says. She's basing it based on what people say, not what the Bible say. And then she turns it on Christ and says, you people, there too, you see? She's saying, he said, she said. That man said, and this other one said, this and that. So where are we going to get the resolution? Where are we going to have this resolution? You people say that Jerusalem, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And why would they say that? Why would the Jews say Jerusalem? Because eventually, starting in Genesis, or, or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses said that eventually, though you can worship God in a ritualistic sense in different places, have altars in different places, eventually God is going to centralize it. It starts in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and throughout the rest of Deuteronomy, Moses says that God's going to designate one place where you shall worship, one place. And eventually, God established that place as being Jerusalem in the time of David and Solomon. And Solomon's temple was built in Jerusalem. So, technically speaking... God had designated Jerusalem as the only true sanctuary, the only true true place of worship. So who is correct? The Jews are correct. And she says, you people, she knows Jesus is a Jew. You people say in Jerusalem. Well, from the time of David and Solomon and after that, yes, Jerusalem was the only valid designated place to worship God as a people in a gathering and with the rituals and with uh, everything associated with that there in Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem. Well, Jesus, what does he do? Does he tell her, listen, I don't want to get into a conflict here. I don't want to get into an argument. I don't want to get into a debate. Does he say, Uh, Well, let's practice friendship evangelism. Let's practice relational evangelism. Let's just go have some dinner together. And maybe after dinner, while we're eating dessert, we can talk about these things. Does he say that? Does he do that? None of that. He does none of that. Actually, what he does is he corrects her there and then on the spot as according to the situation. According to the occasion, he answers her. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He first addresses her, woman, believe me. Remember, woman is not in the Greek New Testament. It's not a way to denigrate or dishonor women. That's not the case at all. Jesus did that in John chapter 2 with his mother and the proof within the book of John that there is no way Jesus was dishonoring his mother is on the cross. Because on the cross, when he's dying, he sees John, his disciple there, and his mother, and he says in John 19, 26, when he's wanting John to take care of his mother, he says, woman, behold 
your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So in a respectful way, Jesus confronts the woman's misunderstandings in a respectful way. When he says, woman, believe me. And then, believe me, he says, believe me. Is that not the problem? Once we recognize who is speaking to us, once we recognize Jesus himself or the word of Christ itself, should we not believe it? The moment we know it's the word of Christ, our natural response should be, I believe it. Even if the flesh or even if the world or even if our previous teachings, our previous understandings of the Bible are in conflict with what we know to be true when Jesus announces it, we should believe it. Whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 29. And without faith, it is impossible, 14, 23. And with um and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. So the moment Jesus speaks, we should believe it. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. Further though, verse 21, an hour is coming. He says, an hour is coming. He means a day is coming when the place of worship will be an irrelevant question. And why would that eventually be an irrelevant question? Because the temple of Jerusalem, according to God's purpose, eventually will be destroyed so that you can't go there either. Eventually, the place of worship is not the main issue. It is what is done there. So he's saying the physical realities are not the main issue. They are intended to be a gap or, or, or to bridge the gap or to illustrate, to be a kind of a tutor or a teacher to help you understand the spiritual truth. But the main issue, the essential issue is the spiritual because a time's coming when you're not going to worship here on Mount Gerizim, nor are you going to worship in Jerusalem. That's when true worship is not going to happen eventually that will be the case because in reference to time, about 40 years after this conversation, God sent the Roman army against Jerusalem to destroy its walls and to destroy its temple. And the people of the Jews, they could not worship there anymore. They could not. This is the point that everyone misunderstands. People think that if they perform the rituals, if they go to a certain place, if they do whatever they need to do in that designated location, in a building, in a temple, in a church building, if they do that, then everything else about them is okay between them and God. But Jesus is correcting that and saying, you have misunderstood all along. All the prophets have taught you not to put your confidence in the sacrifices, in the rituals, in performing that which you think is your religious duty. Don't think that way because an hour is coming when it's going to be impossible to be that way. An example of a prophet speaking like this is Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi, Malachi chapter 1 verse 11. Malachi 1 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, he's not speaking of time. He's speaking of geography. He's talking about from one part of the earth to the other part of the earth. From the east to the west, he's saying, my name will be great among the nations, not just in Israel, but among the nations. Every place incense and is going to be offered and a grain offering that is pure. He's talking about spiritual things such as prayer. He's talking about spiritual things such as offering up ourselves to God. 
He's talking about that. Even the nations of the world will do so. And Jerusalem as a place of worship becomes irrelevant, Malachi says. And God will make his name great among them all. So Malachi predicted that all of this would happen. But someone might say, well, she didn't know this. After all, she didn't believe in Malachi. She only believed in the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So how would she know that the place of worship is irrelevant, that the human heart and spiritual worship of God is most important wherever you do it? Even if you do it collectively or individually, that the spiritual worship of God is most important. Well, just to use one example, she would have believed in the book of Leviticus, right? She would have believed in the book of Leviticus. Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, two sons of Aaron approached God wrongfully with the wrong ritual and they died instantly right there before the Lord. He sent fire and it consumed them instantly. Well, that would have been an example that God is concerned about right motive, doing things the right way. If you just do the ritual without the right motive, with the right purpose and the right way, then you don't succeed. If you do it wrongly, if you have a wrong heart, you're going to do the ritual wrongly. If you have a right heart, you'll do the ritual rightly. So what's most important? The right heart which will guide whether you do it rightly or wrongly. She would have had that example and several others throughout the law of Moses. Verse 22, he further corrects her. You worship that which you do not know. You worship that which you do not know. My people die for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6 Though I gave to them 10,000 precepts of my law, yet they are regarded as a strange thing. Hosea says also, Hosea 8, 11, that the people, they had access to the word and even she has access to the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, the law, but she doesn't, she's not acquainted with it well enough. She's not acquainted with the word of God well enough. And he says, you worship that which you do not know. Not only did Christ say that to her, but the Apostle Paul said that to the Athenians. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, Paul went to Athens, the city of Athens, where they worship idols, where they trust in Greek philosophy. That is their wisdom. And they have Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and their disciples there, like that, they have that there in Athens. They worship idols. Well, Paul, when he has an opportunity to address them, he says, Acts 17, 22, and Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In the case of the woman, she thought she knew well enough. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're worship, worship, worshiping. In the case of the Athenians, they admit they don't know who they're worshiping. They admit it. And Paul says, I see that you don't know who you're worshiping. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you who you need to worship. In both cases, ignorance needed to be corrected, correct? In both cases, ignorance needed to be corrected. Whether it was feigned ignorance or true ignorance, it needed to be corrected. And this is the case when we evangelize. Whenever we converse with people, we have to acknowledge to them, uh, announce to them something that will be hard for them to hear. You worship that which you do not know. You don't know the God of the Bible. You don't understand the gospel of Christ. You don't understand the true nature of God. You worship a God who is a, a, a very, very soft and easy grandfather. You worship a God 
who will not do anything to correct you, who will not tell you anything about judgment and the life to come and the day of judgment to come, who will not tell you anything about your sin. This is typically in our day, the God that they worship. So they worship that which they don't know. So if we announce it, then it's a platform for us to correct it, to show them the right way. That's why he says, we worship that which we know. Notice there, we worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus then identifies himself with the Jewish people, but we know he doesn't mean all the Jewish people. He means the remnant among the Jewish people because he says, we worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's speaking of himself, joining himself with his disciples and other remnants of the Jewish people who truly do know God and know salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. So it takes those who already know to explain it to those who don't know. So faith faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How shall they hear without a preacher? Right? And how shall they believe unless they hear? They have to hear from us. We who know have to announce it to those who don't know. And why is that so important? Salvation is from the Jews. The Jews, the remnant among the Jews, they had the way of salvation. They knew the way of salvation. It comes from them. It starts with them. Salvation is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It starts with them. They have it, so they must explain it. They have it, so they must preach it. Now, when it says salvation, Jesus may be speaking of salvation itself as that which we receive, or he may be speaking of himself. Because it says in Genesis 49, 18, when Jacob is pronouncing blessings, blessings, he says, out of nowhere, it seems, if you read that passage, out of nowhere, it seems, on a casual reading, he says, for I hope or I wait for your salvation, O Lord. If he's hoping for or waiting for the salvation, where is the salvation found? And in Jewish Literature, sometimes one of the terms they use for the Messiah, the Christ, is he is our salvation. Salvation. So whether it's Jesus himself or what Jesus provides or both, he says salvation is from the Jews. Now that is a significant statement. If salvation is from the Jews, then it means it's not from the Arabs. That means it's not from the Indians. That means it's not from the Chinese. That means it's not from the Europeans. That means it's not from the South Americans or the Africans. It's not from them. Salvation is from the Jews. All other religions and all other people who claim that they originated or they possess, they are the houses, they are the beginnings of the way of salvation and true knowledge in the world, It's all wrong and false. Jesus is making a very exclusive statement here. Salvation is not from the Samaritans. He's telling the Samaritan woman this. It's not from you people, the Samaritans. It is from the Jews. He's being very exclusivistic right here. It is from the Jews. We'll also notice that Jesus identifies himself with the Jews. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. Throughout history, and especially these days in the United States, we have a lot of falsehoods and heresies being mentioned and stated, asserted boldly, without any shame about Jesus Christ. There are some these days, especially these days, saying that Jesus was a black man. Jesus was a black man. And he was not a white man as though everybody believes Jesus was a white man from from Europe. No, he was not a white man. No, he was not a black man. He was Jewish. It says it right here. 
We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Christ is a Jewish genealogy. It's not an African genealogy. It's not a European genealogy. It's not anything else. It's a Jewish genealogy. So whoever hates Jews, whether black or white, brown, yellow, whoever hates a Jew is sinning against God because ultimately he would have to hate Jesus Christ, who was a Jew. It's a sin to hate any race just like that. But in this case, they undermine even the gospel of Christ by identifying Jesus with the wrong people and identifying the, Jesus with the wrong people means you also misidentify, mischaracterize salvation and the ultimate and true source of salvation. Salvation is from the Jews, generally speaking, but from which one Jew, specifically speaking? Jesus Christ. So we must believe in Jesus Christ and reject all other notions of him because they are false. They are destructive. They lead to hell. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. An hour is coming and now is. An hour is coming is probably a repetition of verse 21, emphasizing the point that it should happen regardless of location. But he says, and now is. It's not as though God never expected people to truly worship him regardless of location. Of course he did. He expected individuals throughout the Old Testament to truly worship him, whether they were in the temple or not, when they were by themselves, in their own homes. He expected families to truly worship him. Deuteronomy 6, they were supposed to teach their children diligently when they rise up and when they lie down, when they are in their house sitting or when they are walking along the way. Well, that doesn't mean they're in the temple. So he was expecting them to worship, think about God, pray to God, meditate on his word in other places, in a spiritual way, correct? And then when Daniel the prophet could not worship in the temple, where did he worship? He worshiped in the land of the Babylonians, correct? And the same with others, that whenever they were not in the physical location, they worship God. And God has always wanted people to do that. If the temple or the tabernacle were the only way, the restricted way to worship God, then how did Adam and Eve worship God? How did Abel worship God? How did Noah worship God? They did not have a temple in which to worship God. No, they worshiped him spiritually, whether they were gathered in small groups or, or gathered as a church, gathered as an assembly. That's how they worship God or even individually. And Jesus is reminding her of this, that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Reiterating the fact that the worship of God, that God seeks from his worshipers, are not those who feign worship, who pretend worship, who come to worship for the wrong reasons or wrong spirit or with falsehood in their minds and hearts. He says he wants those who are in spirit and truth. Verse 24, in spirit and truth. In spirit means in our human spirit, in our heart, our internal man, our inner man should have a right disposition before God. It should be humble. It should be teachable. We should have a created heart, a new heart that worships God. That should be our desire. So we don't come with ill motives. We don't come with bad intentions. We don't come because we're trying to do something else when we come into the assembly of the church. We don't come for those reasons. We don't come pretending that we are Christians. We come with sincerity, with a genuine heart, spirit inside of us. 
Now, how is that possible? But by the Holy Spirit. In order for us to come that way, it must be because the Holy Spirit changed us. Right? The flesh profits nothing. John 6, 63. And then in John chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So for us to have the right spirit, we must be born of the Spirit. And further, truth. Truth. When we come, we should be seeking truth. We should be seeking for what is right and good and true, accurate, faithful, according to Scripture. We can't worship God when we have falsehood. So if someone says, I worship God in spirit and truth, and he is hearing falsehood preached to him, there is no Trinity. The Trinity is false. The way of salvation is by works. The, the way to worship God is by worshiping idols. We can pray to this or that other person or dead saint, and that is the way. Or that we don't need the Bible to worship God. We don't need to hear the gospel to worship God. We don't need to hear the truth of Scripture to worship God. I will talk about my personal experiences. I will talk about this or that book. I will talk about what has happened in recent news and in current events. I will talk about this or that other thing. You can't worship God in truth that way. You have to know what's in the Bible accurately to worship Him accurately. You have to have true content in order to worship Him. Because the Father seeks those to be his worship, uh, worshipers. 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit or God is a spirit. What he's been explaining, why is all that true and right? Why is it that he desires us to worship him in spirit and truth? Why is that the case? Because the nature of God is spirit. Why would we think that God is preoccupied and fixated on the physical issues of worship? Why would we think that? We would think that if we thought of God in physical terms, if we thought of God as an image or an idol. If we thought of God that way, then we could conclude, therefore, it's the physical aspect that is most important. But he says God is spirit, right? The, the scripture says that he is unseen, Hebrews eleven twenty seven, 27, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 17, Colossians 1, 15, and 16. The invisible God, God is invisible. He's unseen. And even in Deuteronomy, she should know this, in the book of Deuteronomy, Chapter 4, God told her in the book of Deuteronomy that this is the case. Deuteronomy 4, 15. Deuteronomy 4, 15. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven." So God's making it clear. You didn't see any form. So why are you thinking of God in terms of a form to worship him that way? The point is he is invisible. He's unseen. You cannot see him with your physical eyes. It's impossible. Yes, he may manifest himself temporarily in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. He might display his radiant glory, Shekinah glory, 
But that's only a token of his presence. That's not his real presence. That's just a token of it so that we who are physical and natural, we can tell, okay, yes, God is there. He is speaking to me. But otherwise, God is spirit. So if God is spirit, what's most important to him? Our spiritual life. Well, she says in 25, in response to all this, she does not have a refutation. Notice that. She has no refutation. She has nothing with which she can object. She continues, though, with her point in 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. It's the Apostle John who clarifies he who is called Christ. First, let's clarify. Messiah is a transliteration, not translation, but transliteration from Hebrew to English. Messiah. Christ is a transliteration from Greek to English. Christ is a transliteration, not translation, from Greek to English. Between Hebrew and Greek, the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament, the Greek language has this word Christ to reflect Old Testament Messiah. So what do these words mean if we were to translate them instead of transliterating them? What do these two terms mean? And these are often used interchangeably in English. They mean anointed one, anointed one. He who is anointed by God's spirit and demonstrated or the symbol of the Holy Spirit's anointing is the pouring of oil on the one who is inaugurated in his office. And in the Old Testament, the prophet would be anointed when he begins his ministry. The priest would be anointed when he begins his ministry. And the king would be anointed when he began his ministry ministry. Prophet, priest, and king would be anointed when they start their positions of authority. And so the ultimate prophet or the ultimate priest, the ultimate king was this Christ who is known as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. That's the reason she's saying what she's saying. And then John is clarifying who, who she means or what she means. Notice too, though, I know. Who is the I? It's a Samaritan woman. Notice here, even though she had many things wrong, she had a few things right. And her few things right are right here in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. A Samaritan woman knew this. She's not a priest. She's not even a Samaritan priest. She's not a Samaritan teacher. She's not a part of the, of the aristocrats of Samaria. She is a lowly, common woman and one who's living in sin. She knew that Messiah is coming. This is an important point because many people think that when you read the Bible, it's only for the most educated. It's only for the sophisticated. It's only for the wealthy and the powerful. It's only for men. It's only for Jewish men. No one else can understand the Bible. No one else can read the Bible for their own benefit and for their salvation. This is not true. The Bible is plain and clear on fundamental matters Matters of God, matters of man, matters of our way of salvation and how we should live our life. It is ultimately and explicitly clear about all these matters. And this is evidence of it. The Samaritan woman knew these things. She says also that Messiah is coming. He is coming. How do we know that Messiah is coming? And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us, all things to us. What would she have known? Now, as you're thinking about the Old Testament, in your mind, you might be thinking of Isaiah chapter 53, 
which is one of the most famous passages and most important passages of all the Bible. Yes, Isaiah 53 clearly, clearly explains the coming death and resurrection of Christ for our redemption. It clearly does. But we can't use Isaiah when we're talking to a Samaritan, right? Because the Samaritans don't believe in Isaiah as a prophet. The Jews do, and we Christians do, but the Samaritans do not. So what would have been the source of her understanding that Messiah is coming or the ultimate prophet, remember she calls him a prophet in verse 19, the ultimate supreme prophet, the prophet of all the prophets is coming. He's going to be anointed. He's going to come and he's going to declare all things to us. Well, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. 22 verse 18. In 22.18, here we have one such example, and we'll mention a couple of more. One such example, which would have been at her fingertips, which likely would have been taught by the Samaritan teachers and priests to her and to others. Because it says in Genesis 22.18, And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Who is this seed? Who is this offspring that will be a blessing to all the nations? Who is this one? The Apostle Paul confirms to us Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The Apostle teaches us that what God said to Abraham about his singular seed, his one offspring, his one descendant, was Christ. Was Christ. And the Samaritans looked for the coming of Christ based on passages such as that one. Another one, Numbers chapter, Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Remember, we're looking at here only passages in the law of Moses. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Well, who is this him? Who is this star? Who is this scepter? Who is it that was able or is able to crush Moab and all the sons of Sheth? Well, no one has done so. If you study this passage in the literature outside of the Bible, both believers and unbelievers, skeptics and believers, those who have faith in the Bible, even liberal commentators on this verse, they all say that this is one of the very few and clear messianic passages. Even a liberal will admit that right here. And certainly the Samaritans believed that this would happen. Notice also the word come. A star shall come. So she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And elsewhere in the Bible, we know he is known as the coming one, the coming one, because of verses like this one. And then one more from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. 18, 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Who is this prophet after Moses that's going to be like Moses, but it's going to be one of their relatives? Moses was from the tribe of Levi, so among their relatives would be from the tribe of Judah, right? 
verse 16, this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the, the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. For he reiterates that this prophet will be like Moses. And then he says, God's words are going to be put in his mouth, right? Isn't that what Jesus said about himself throughout the book of John? And then he shall speak to them all that I command him, which is also what Christ said. And this is likely, verse 18, is likely the verse that she has in mind, all that I command him, all the things. He's going to tell me all the things that I have done. This is what she said later in the book of John, in John chapter 4, when she went back to her village, she told the, the men of the village in John 4, 39, he told me all the things that I had done. Well, how was he able to say some things or all the things that she had done, such as that she was with a man who was not her husband because he was a prophet and they expected God to inform the prophet and then the prophet would display his special knowledge because God endowed him with that. Special knowledge. Now, a confirmation that these verses in Deuteronomy are actually messianic. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And not only the ones in Deuteronomy, but in Genesis. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. 3, 22. Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by returning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter the apostle tells this group that has amassed after the healing of the, the lame man, and he quotes these passages, the ones from Deuteronomy 18 and Genesis 22, and says, these you know are in reference to Christ. And the reason that these are announced, so that we might turn from our wicked ways and believe in the gospel. We will see in the subsequent passage in John 4 that this woman, she was indeed corrected and she did indeed believe. And finally, we come to verse 26. John 4, 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. He clearly, without any ambiguity, tells her that he is the Christ. He tells her plainly and clearly he is the Christ. This is significant. It's significant because when we read the Bible and even in the pages of the New Testament, there are interpreters who believe that Jesus was always vague. He was always pronouncing riddles. He never said anything openly and plainly and clearly that he never did that. But that's not the case. He did do so. He did it here with the Samaritan woman. I who speak to you am he. And then in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, just to use a few examples in John where he spoke clearly about who he is. John chapter 5, verse 17, 517. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more 
to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He clearly told them, my father is working and I myself am working. They knew that he meant my father in a very unique way, in a messianic way, in a Christological way, that he was the son of God. That's why they wanted to kill him. He clearly said that. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. He is debating the Jews in John 8. And they are accusing him of being demon-possessed, of being a Samaritan, of being uh, one who does not know God. He's accusing him, or they are accusing him of these things. But he, on the other hand, on the other hand, he says in verse 58, 858, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He clearly said that he is, I am, the God of the Old Testament, right? The great I am from Exodus 3, 14 and 15. They knew he was doing that. That's why they wanted to kill him, because they thought he was blaspheming God. Furthermore, John chapter 10, the Jews again, the group of the Jews, not just individual ones, but a group of them again in John 10. John 10, they approach him. John 10, 24, the Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They accuse Jesus of not telling them plainly that he is the Christ. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. I told you and you do not believe. He told them plainly and they still did not believe. He further goes on to explain, but these are just a few examples that Jesus did plainly and openly declare to them who he was. So what should we do? Plainly and openly declare who Christ is to people. When they have false beliefs, when they have heretical beliefs about Christ, we need to plainly and openly confront their falsehoods with the truth about who he really and truly is. We must do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.